Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are The Natural Selection. On today's show... Is there something about dolphins? No. What I was looking for, Jack, was missiles controlled by pigeons. <laughs> Proper like. And you know what they say about lobster fishermen? Oh my god. They, they don't speak. <laughs> yeah. They don't talk. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. old lobby tight lips over there. He don't, yeah. he, he don't say nothing. Are you familiar with Kafka's Metamorphosis? <laughs> no, I'm going to need some explanation. <laughs> okay, Jack Baddams. Roddy Shaw. Barbie or Oppenheimer? Ooh, I've actually... What was your pick of the song? Well, I've only been to see one, and it was Barbie. Right. Well, as we all know by now, one of these is the story of a tortured lead trying to navigate a new world order, asking questions about the very systems that define our human reality. And the other is Oppenheimer. (laughs) Very good. So for anyone who has legitimately been under a complete rock, Oppenheimer, of course, tells the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, director of the Manhattan Project and father of the atomic bomb, as he is tasked with leading a team to create the weapon which will end the war, or indeed, as they thought, be the weapon that ended all wars. Yeah, that went well. Yeah, and and they get up to some wacky escapades along the way. (laughs) By now, and even before the film, most people I'm sure would have heard of the Manhattan Project, which was the government codename for the operation to design and build the atomic bomb. But I'm going to go through a much lesser known World War II research operation called Project X-Ray, which until the development of the atomic bomb picked up enough pace to be seen as the clear frontrunner, was viewed by the US government as a leading viable option to be a major weapon against the Japanese. Okay, so we're talking at similar similar time frame. We're in World War II, yep. and this is something that before the Manhattan Project took off, this was their sort of like, you know, next big thing. The two research projects were happening alongside each other, okay. kind of unbeknownst to the other. Oh, okay. People on Team A didn't know about Team B. People on Team B didn't know about Team A. But the government had a number of wartime research things going on to try and uh, you know, get ahead yeah. and be the next big thing. But we're going to focus on Project X-Ray. Jack Baddams, do you have any idea what could possibly be in store for Project X-Ray? N- no, but I want to take a guess. Mm-hmm. Based on the name, is the name X-ray in any way related uh, to? I'm getting X-ray, and I'm getting like see-through things. So I okay. was wondering if it's any sort of like uh, sonar-based sort of thing. That's my guess. Like X-ray, seeing through things, being able to see without vision. Okay, because of course the Manhattan Project. <laughs> dropped manhattan <laughs> well it, it might as well have like it was the equivalent of dropping manhattan on nagasaki so <laughs> i probably shouldn't be laughing but we're gonna park a lot of the horrors of the war anyway yeah let's crack on we were, this will not be the nuclear war joke section of how many keys yeah yeah right who directed oppenheimer uh christopher nolan right what other film franchise did he direct <gasps> because there is a clue in what we're going down. I was I was right. It's 
like sonar echolocation which would mean this story involves bats right so it does involve bats it's got nothing to do with sonar or echolocation okay i'm gonna put you out of your misery and i'm gonna get right into it because because sorry i should say christopher nolan directed for people who don't know the batman the dark knight trilogy that's that's the link exactly well the link is also the fact that Oppenheimer and this were legitimate wartime things. Yeah. It's just a total fluke that the director but that's how had a I series got about. Yeah, 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 yeah. So let me get straight into it. This, Jack Baddams, is the story of how one of the US government's plans to win the war was to gather up a million bats from caves in Texas, strap them with napalm incendiaries, pack a thousand of them at a time into cluster bombs, drop them over Japan, releasing the bats at altitude to then fly off and roost in the wooden buildings below. A timing device would trigger the bombs, setting the napalm aflame, and entire Japanese cities would burn to the ground. Holy shit. This is the story of Project X-Ray, aka the bat bomb whoa and this wow okay i would rather have gone and seen that movie 100 percent true and it starts as all completely deranged stories might in the place you'd never possibly bloody imagine okay it starts jack with a dentist on holiday <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay a dentist called Lytle. Doc Adams. His first name is L Y T L E. Mm -hmm. Lytle. But we're going to call him Doc or Adams. So, Adams was a dentist come inventor from Pennsylvania who was always trying to solve things. Invention was his kind of background side hobby. Born in 1881, he was around 60 years old when, in 1941, he'd been visiting a cave on vacation in New Mexico. And a few hours after visiting, where he witnessed millions upon millions of bats flying around this cave, he heard on the radio that Japan had dropped a bomb on Pearl Harbor. The inventor in him immediately got to work, and less than a month later, he'd sent his plan to the White House. Right, okay. And his plan, just to be crystal clear here, was to strap explosive <laughs> devices to bats and airdrop them over Japan. <gasps> yeah, and hang on. So the, the US military didn't reject this out of hand as being a complete... Like, they, they went, okay, we've had this. Imagine, imagine, right, this is like children's, this is like Blue Peter level shit. Like, somebody writes in, oh, we've had a letter from the audience on how to beat the Japanese. Mr. Doc Adams or whatever has written in from New Mexico, and he suggested that we strap bombs to bats and drop them on Japan. And the government went, yeah, sounds good. So... I've literally written in front of me. Now, how does one man get straight ahead of this, I hear you say, Jack? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's basically a paraphrase of what I just said. So I knew I knew this would be the moment you'd jump on. It's very simple. Adams knew Eleanor Roosevelt, the then wife of President Franklin D. Roosevelt. That'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Having flown her in his personal plane to demonstrate one of his earlier inventions. Ah. So... He had an in. Yeah. Um, his idea was taken to the National Research Defense Commission, who were the group who were in charge of kind of investigating war-applicable ideas, who themselves forwarded it on to a scientist called Donald Griffin, who it turns out was the scientist who coined the term echolocation. He was basically the leading authority or one of the leading authorities on bats at the day. Oh. And it was him who actually cracked how bats navigate. His review of the proposal was... 
This proposal seems bizarre and visionary at first glance. We're now in April 1942. But extensive experience with experimental biology convinces the writer that if executed competently, it would have every chance of success. Oh my god. And so it then made its way to the big president himself, or I'm actually a little bit unclear if the president got it first and handed it to the commission, or the commission got it first, had it checked out, and then to the president. But the president then issued an official memorandum, which is basically the president saying, this is good, go do it which included the line, this man is not a nut. <laughs> it sounds like a perfectly wild idea, but is worth looking into. Right, okay. So we now find ourselves an official US government research project in an attempt to end the war. Other research underway at the time included, as we've mentioned... The Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project and Oppenheimer, and another research project at the time, which is a little bit more up Goose's Street. Is is there something about dolphins? No. What I was looking for, Jack, was missiles controlled by pigeons. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> for not for not getting that one. Why did they think uh, that was gonna work? Was that a homing was that a homing thing? No 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 no. Controlled as in like piloted, like pigeon in the <laughs> missile. So what they would do very quickly is they'd get pigeons used to pecking on a screen with whatever the target they wanted to bomb is. And if the pigeon pecked the target, a seed had come out. And then they, once the pigeon was trained up, would put it in a missile and basically the, there'd be like a box window. And if the targeting thing drifted away from the target, the pigeon would peck more and more and more. And that, like, connected to some gyroscopes, which would basically re-steer and realign the missile. That's the most... That one never actually got off the ground, but it's what they were going for. Yeah, I mean, like, do they think that a pigeon... A pigeon's concentration was going to mean that it was, like, when hurtling through the air at whatever many thousand kilometres an hour, that it was still going to be focused on the hospital or the military base <laughs> rather than just being like fuck <laughs> well like i said uh that one actually one of the reasons they think that one didn't take off is because that inventor didn't have a line straight to the president <laughs> yeah well quite <laughs> yeah so had doc come up with that one maybe it would have uh you know grown wings it's not about what you know yeah it's all about who you know so here we are. Presidential memorandum. We're off to the races. Research Council approved. The project is greenlit. Once greenlit, it was handed to the Air Force to develop and work out how to do, and it was given to Doc to pull together his crack team to steer the project. Are you ready for the crack team? Yeah. Okay. The first two are going to make sense. We've got a mammologist from the LA County Museum yeah. doing stuff with bats. Pretty key. We've also got two high school students who assisted the head scientist. They were working at the museum, so they were basically his research assistants. So, okay. head scientist, two research assistants. Next, a 24-year-old pilot turned movie actor. Then, an ex-hotel manager, a bodybuilder, an ex-gangster who claimed to have worked for Al Capone, a lobster fisherman, and the inventor of napalm. <laughs> what? Christopher Nolan, what was he doing picking the Manhattan Project? This movie is crying out to be made. Oh, my God. Crying out. That's so... What a rundown. Yeah. So Adam's had the gift of the gab and can basically get anyone on side, it seems. But the reason this team is so kind of ragtag, they think, is he was basically pulling together the people who were most uh, 
not that he could control that's too kind of mean but just people he felt would be he wanted a tight-knit team and these people just clicked it was a proper like and you know what they say about lobster fishermen oh my god they they don't speak <laughs> yeah they don't talk <laughs> yeah. that's all lobby tight lips over there he don't yeah. he, he don't say nothing yeah yeah we know you're a locked box <laughs> but the bit of course that we haven't mentioned are the bats themselves yeah so following initial discussions and preliminary research it was chosen that the mexican freetail bats would be the and i don't know what word to use here the pilots the payload carriers the victims yeah the the missiles (laughs) yeah so let's take a look at the mexican freetail bats one of the most abundant mammals in North America, it roosts in some absolutely gargantuan numbers. And I think our earlier episode, which had big bat roosts in it, the Festival of Nature special, probably mentions Mexican free-tailed bats. I know it does big bat numbers, and I'm going to hazard a guess that it's these, because their population is somewhere between 50 to 100 million just in New Mexico and Texas. The cave where Adams first saw them roosting, remember, like, he was on holiday a couple hours before he heard on the radio they were at war. What inspired him had an estimated 9 million bats roosting in it. Even today, there's a bridge in Austin, Texas, like a major bloody city, and this bridge just has 1.5 million bats roosting in it. Wild. These things congregate. The largest colonies in Texas, and it's about 20 million individuals living together in one massive colony. They're not the biggest bat in the world. They're about 9 centimetres long and weigh between 7 and 12 grams. But one of the early bits of research they needed was they needed a particularly strong bat. And they worked out that these bats can carry up to 18 grams. So they can carry more than their own body weight in flight. Whoa. Yeah. Hench. What a series of experiments that would have been. I, I think it was just like a hanging ever more, like buckaroo, but with a bat, you know, just delicately putting ever more yeah. things on. There are migratory species, but not just that, and this was really cool, and I had no idea about this. They are the highest flying bat species, which is great news if you're about to be thrown out of a plane. <laughs> they can fly at altitudes of 3,300 meters or 10,800 feet. Okay, so we're talking like a third the height of like commercial airliners and things like that, which is pretty, for a bat, it's pretty damn high. Yeah, nine centimeters long, it weighs 10 grams. And it's a third of a commercial airliner. More than just that, Jack Baddams, he who thinks feathers own the sky, these are thought to be one of the fastest animals out there because they've been clocked at the fastest horizontal speed of any known animal reaching ground speeds of over 99 miles an hour so peregrines can of course hit big speeds in a dive that's just falling with style though isn't it exactly but basically on the flat this 10 gram bat can do 99 miles an hour which because i know they're close to your heart i did check swifts clock out at 70 oh pussies (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> oh that that's cool i didn't yeah i did not know that i would have thought that i know i knew that swifts were the fastest flying birds in level flight specifically white-throated needle tails member of the swift family but even i don't know the exact stat but yeah i i knew that it wasn't that high so hat t- i tip my hat to the bat and even cooler i think 
is the more I read on this bat, the more totally bonkers it is as an absolutely micro superhero. In 2014, it was reported by a research team that they'd identified the species emitting ultrasonic calls which jammed the echolocation of competing species of bat. So if they were hunting for insects, the Mexican free-tailed bat can put out a noise which jams, like a proper military radio signal, jams the echolocation of competing bat species and they can hoover up all the insects. Like this bat is ready-made for a military operation. Yeah, yeah. Fastest in level flight, highest altitude flying, and has radio jamming equipment. Yeah, suddenly it's not a mad idea after all. (laughs) Yeah, still questions hanging over the lobster fishermen. (laughs) (laughs) This, well, wait wait till you see how fast lobsters can walk on the seabed. <laughs> and so the bat was conscripted by the US government in the war effort against the Japanese. Now, whilst the mammologist heading up the project and the two research assistants and some of the others were self-professed bat lovers, Adams's view of bats was somewhat different. In a letter he wrote to Franklin Roosevelt, president of the united states of america at the time of pitching his idea he summed up his views on bats with the following bats are quote the lowest form of animal life and that until now reasons for its creation have remained unexplained going on to say that bats were created by god to await this hour to play their part in the scheme of free human existence and to frustrate any attempt of those who dare desecrate our way of life what a punk-ass bitch. <laughs> That's not cool, man. It's pretty mad, isn't it? That he just, like... That's horrible. Damned them all and to argued f- to the president yeah. that God created them to be a to, pawn to in his be, game. Yeah, let's rewind that. God created bats 2,000 years ago, or whatever. You believe the Earth 4,000 years ago, whenever yeah. you believe the Earth was made. When God made all life, what he did is he was sat around with his angels... And he went, you know what? This world needs an animal that in 4,000 years' time, at a very specific point in history, (laughs) needs to be loaded into an aeroplane and strapped with tiny napalm devices so that, you know, a country can win a war. Yeah. I was probably at the back of the Bible somewhere, to be fair. And the angels are there with like a question mark over words such as aeroplane, war, <laughs> country, you know, just like we'll circle yeah. back to that. Not sure what that is, but big I'm man's sure got a plan. Yeah, I'm sure it's somewhere in the Old Testament. Yeah. So there were some complications to getting this plan together and off sure. the ground. Surely not. <laughs> such as what type of explosive to use, how big or small can it be, how to collect millions of bats, how to house millions of bats, how to get bombs stuck on to millions of bats how to get them in and out of hibernation so that they could be transported easily because the idea was basically if you chilled them so they went into hibernation mode you could then handle them stick the bombs on them load them up flying at altitude they'd be cool 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 and then if you dropped them as it kind of heated up and everything would they snap out of hibernation quickly enough to fly off yeah like i said couple challenges yeah But they quickly, uh, well, not so much quickly, but the plan quickly distilled down to each bat would need to be induced into hibernation, as I said, fitted with an 18-gram explosive napalm device, which was on a timer, Mm. loaded into metal casing 
that would hold 1,040 bats. This metal kind of tube would be loaded onto the planes, dropped out. A parachute would deploy at 4,000 feet, slowing the tube right down. The temperature change would wake up the bats. As I said, the side of the tubes would come off, the bats would fly out, they'd be no idea where they were, but they'd see the buildings and the structures, they'd be like, that's where I'm going. Fly, 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 because at the time, a lot of Japanese architecture was made out of wood and paper, they'd roost in all the tiny cracks and crevices of the wood, the bomb would go off, and it'd go. And it was theorized, based on however you do this calculation, but it was theorized by the military bomb calculation people and the scientists, that a standard bombing mission, like with actual bombs as we know it, would start up to 400 ground fires. A big bit of this, and the idea behind it, was that the fires would be demoralizing. You'd look out and, you know, it'd be fires up until the horizon. So a standard bombing mission would ignite up to 400 ground fires, but they estimated that through the use of bat bombs, this could become over 4,800 for a similar mission. So it was supposedly going to be 12 times more anarchy. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, other than many of its logistical problems, I can see on paper it would work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And just in case you thought this whole thing couldn't get any more bizarre, the factory... Don't don't worry, I didn't. (laughs) Well, uh, the factory where the bomb casings were made in was owned by... White Christmas singer Bing Crosby. <laughs> oh, really? Why? Why? I don't know. I. <gasps> Why do you into factories? <laughs> I've known about this for a while. I mentioned to you the other day that I had something up my sleeve that I've been waiting to deploy. Mm. And the fact that the summer has been on an Oppenheimer wave, I was like, this is the time. I had never heard until I researched it again the fact that Bing Crosby owned armed munitions factories or something. <laughs> but of all the tendrils that come out and span across the world in the story of the Bat Bomb, the fact that the dude who sung I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas owned the factory that made the shells is just insane. Yeah. But the question on yours and everyone's lips, I'm sure, is... Did it ever work? Yeah. I I wanted like, did they test it and stuff? So, across a number of testing events, here are some of the results they have. Okay. I will say that not all of these involve the bats carrying the explosives. So, test number one. And these aren't tests number one, two, three, but example test number one. The metal casing that the bats were in wouldn't open in time, and the tube just fell straight to the earth with all the bats in it. Okay. So, just bats died on impact. Yep, splat bats. Splat bats. Free, Mexican free-tailed splats. Yeah. Number two, the bats would not head for any of the structures because they were testing this out in New Mexico and they built, like, fake villages to see if the bats would go. The bats would just fly off. So they'd spend all this money going to the caves, collecting them, feeding them, housing them. They'd release them, and the bats just disappeared over the sunset. Would they go back to their? Would they go back to their roosts? Or you know, can they? If they're releasing them in New Mexico, are they like homing pigeons that can fly back? And would they just set? You know, they were. If they'd got the plan to go and collect another million bats, and then all of a sudden they got there, and the whole cave was on fire because four that they'd released had just flown back to the main roost and set it set it all alight. <laughs> 
I was going at it the other way. So bats are incredibly faithful to their roosts. It's why the destruction of roosts can be such a big deal. I was coming at it from if you were a bat who got released without a bomb on you, not to go back to that cave and to think, fuck that. If I go back there, they're going to collect me again. (laughs) I see, I see. I'm just going to leave. And then in May 1943... The accidental release of six armed bats saw them go to roost beneath a fuel tank at a brand new airbase burning the entire place to the ground, including the general's car who'd been invited to see his new airfield. (laughs) Hey, I'm going to file that one under it worked. Dude, it worked. Like Like, when it worked, it worked so well. Six (laughs) bats burnt down an entire new military airfield with if you do it each one of those bats had 18 grams of napalm so that's 620 that's under 120 grams of napalm but they got into such a wiggly hole next to the fuel tank that they detonated the whole airfield wow like the concept here like you said when it works (laughs) it works yeah however unfortunately Following that mishap, the project was transferred to the Marine Corps in December 1943. And just to put something on this, so December 1943, the bombing of Hiroshima was in August 1945. Okay, so we're two couple of years out. A couple of years out. The Manhattan Project is underway and all the rest were a couple of years out. And imagine, imagine you said that they didn't have any concept of each other. But imagine being on the boring Manhattan Project, faffing around with, like, physics and splitting atoms, and then you just see the guys, like, wrestling a million bats into the back of a van and strapping little napalm jackets on them and being, like, looking forlornly out the window at all the fun they're having. But do you know what's mad about it as well, though, is, like, we think of this as the most insane idea possible, but we are living in a post-atomic age. At the time, the idea that... It was so much more uh, conceivable to put a bomb on a bat and see the bat fly over there and the bomb go off than someone telling you this thing you can't even see or can't even imagine. If we can work out how to break it, it will destroy an entire city. Like the idea of an atomic bomb until an atomic bomb happens is such an insane concept. The idea of a bomb on a bat is a bomb on a bat. Yeah, like, okay. It's, yeah. it's so much more route one. Yeah, it's, like, it's probably like the time where people were like, you know what we could do to like kill people in wars? We could just like sit on the back of a horse and they're like, mm. what? Like, you yeah. know, we could just like sit on the back of a horse and ride it. They're like, what a stupid idea that is. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up, Terry. Yeah. Shut up. We're not getting on the horses. Um, So... Where are we? We 1943, the whole airfield's been burnt down. The general got pissed off. It got kicked out of the Air Force and the Marine Corps were put in charge. And that saw the Marine Corps do some fine tuning. And by the end of that, they had built their mock Japanese village. They had got their bats in the tube. They'd loaded them all up and the test worked perfectly. The Japanese village was burnt down and it was concluded that Project X-Ray was an effective weapon. Wow. However, by mid-1944, after about 30 more demonstrations, the project was shelved by the fleet admiral in charge of the whole situation. 
Fleet Admiral Killjoy. Yeah. (laughs) Fleet Admiral Nerd. Um, What's interesting is that he shelved it when he heard that it would not be combat ready until mid-1945. His issue was how long it was going to take. Hiroshima happened in mid-1945. And there are these memos and notes and everything and all these accounts of Adams. You know, it was his baby pet project coming back from these meetings and being like oh my god they're talking about splitting atoms and stuff like this like they had an idea of what was going on with the other research projects but like i said it was just deemed so insane yeah so the fleet admiral pulled the plug on it when he heard it wouldn't be combat ready till mid 1945 at an estimated cost of two million dollars which in today's money is 32 and a half million dollars now I, for one, am personally very glad that the war did not go down the path of exploding bats. That's obviously not to say that the path it went down is any better. Yeah. However, I do just want to point out that this fleet admiral pulled the plug because it was costing $2 million. The Manhattan Project cost $2 billion. (laughs) So I don't really know what financial sort of... (laughs) And can I just say... If if the bat bomb worked, let's say the bat bomb got there before the Manhattan Project, do we then live in a world without nuclear weapons? Well, we live in a world with a far fewer bats. I'll tell you that. Yeah, <laughs> but, but like, is 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 the is instead of um, you know, is our trident security just missiles full of bats? Is it then? Is it does it then just become a, a global standoff about who has the most bats? And we're living in a world now where it's like, oh yeah, Russia's Russia. Instead of like Russia's got its hand, its finger on the nuclear button, it's like, oh, Russia's got all those submarines full of bats floating around in the North Sea. So a couple things following that: one, Central America becomes a global superpower like nowhere else. <laughs> Number two, America has the Mexican free-tailed bats, which we've already established are superheroes in and of themselves number three we're fucked because we have like little provincial bats in village churches called scrumpton on the mire you know and stuff like that whereas america has caves with 20 million captain americas roosting yeah could you imagine like australia weaponizing the fruit bats yeah like literally (laughs) not even strapping bombs to them but just giving them flamethrowers (laughs) <laughs> just to just to like use at will mounted on each wing yeah <clears throat> following the project's cancellation and the war coming to an end the team broke up and they all went their separate ways one of the high school members went on to be, so one of the research assistants went on to become an oscar nominated cinematographer i don't know what to do with that fact it's just <laughs> what a weird career path that is yeah um And Adams kept on inventing with one of his proposals being a fried chicken vending machine, which, to be completely honest, I reckon we should take another look at because (laughs) I think he might have been onto something. But then I I imagine he's the kind of guy where, like, you go, oh, this looks good. And then at the bottom of the page, it's like, and it explodes. It's like everything is everything looks really sensible. And then you get to the bottom of all of his writings and he's like, and then you drop it out of a plane and it explodes. Yeah, 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 exactly. He, he, I... And and that, to wrap up, is the tale of Project X-Ray. But quite how that isn't a film or better known, God only knows. Yeah. 
I wouldn't have gone to see Barbie if this was the other option. Dude, I wouldn't have gone to see Oppenheimer if this was the other option. <laughs> and what would be great is if this ever does become a film, if it has a cameo from Killian Murphy. Yes, just like walking past in a corridor. On a corridor with a dossier. Yeah, yeah. great. There we go. It's time for a very special that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, you currently join us recording in the gardens of an old Belgian monastery. And the reason that we're here is that we spent last night at a very lovely wedding, didn't we, Roddy Shaw? Yes. And you may have heard us talk about the fact that Roddy and I met on an expedition in Madagascar six years ago, but we weren't the only people to come away from Madagascar with something very special. Not at all. Because we've just been to the wedding of Jonas and Alex, who met whilst we were all out there uh, on the expedition. And last night, Jonas pulled me to one side at the wedding to tell me something very important. Because even on the most important day of his life, what could possibly be more important than how many geese? We just had uh, a picture with them. And Jonas was like, Jack, I need to I need to tell you something. And he made a point of like pushing you away, didn't he? And being like, You can't you can't hear this. Yeah. Um so it turns out he's a big fan of the show. And so today's animal has been submitted in person by the groom, Jonas, and it is the mole cricket. <laughs> oh fucking hell. Let's get to know our foe. Oh my Mole God. crickets are a group of crickets about three to five centimetres long that are highly specialised to live a fossorial lifestyle, which, new word for your listeners, was a new word for me, means an animal adapted for digging. As the name suggests, the mole cricket loves to dig and it has got shovel-like forelimbs for burrowing. Now, these forelimbs are pretty hardcore. They're broad, flattened, toothed, and heavily sclerotized. Sclerotized meaning the cuticle is all hardened and darkened. They also have small eyes, as they spend much of their lives underground and only disperse with their wings in the breeding season. They eat a range of things, with some being herbivorous, some being omnivorous, some being predatory. And male mole crickets have an exceptionally loud song, and they sing from their burrow that opens out into the air in the shape of like an exponential horn. So the mm. way their burrow is constructed amplifies the song. Mm. Um, like other crickets, they sing by stridulation, which is scraping the rear edge of the left forewing, which basically forms a plectrum, against the lower surface of the right forewing. Now, one final fact, which you need to take into consideration, Roddy, which was specified by Jonas himself, is that you have to be the size of a mole cricket. Oh, well fucking played. Now, normally, <laughs> normally, dear listener, I wouldn't yield to such requests, but invite us to your weddings and we can talk. Yeah. So, no, yeah. Roddy Shaw... You put on a free bar, it gets you a long way. <laughs> Roddy Shaw, how many mole crickets are too many mole crickets? Fuck. Oh, I tip my hat. To Jonas. Do we want to... Can we explain why mole cricket is a thing? Yeah. I mean, we can We can try. So when... And again, I don't want to make this too long-winded, but when we were in Madagascar, we all lived together in this camp in the absolute middle of nowhere. And one of the ways we would pass time is catch insects to take a closer look at them and keep them in a little jar. 
and there were scorpions there which are arachnids whatever don't at me there were scorpions there there were centipedes there was this there was that there was the other all pretty sort of uh fearsome Mm. insects i would say and but one day a mole cricket was brought into camp and it detested me to a level that few things ever have i have never seen any creature on earth or any other realm quite as just they're like then they're kind of they're at like a, an evolutionary crossroads or something so they're not you know you get crickets above ground which jump really well and are brightly colored and you're like wow look at your colors look at your wings look at your jumping and then they've got this sort of like quasimodo mole man cousin thing that kind of can't quite jump too well and it's got this big head with these huge mouth parts to chomp through shit it's got these club like front spade yeah. feet to dig but it's like not really that good at digging because it still kind of can jump and so and when it when it was in the jar like i remember the way it moved and like when it was trying to dig the bottom of the jar oh, it was just a bit like a horrific sort of <laughs> fell beast yeah. now before we go down that path too much i do just want to add that i was quite taken aback just then when you said you'd never heard of the word fossorial before yeah however i've justified it to myself in that there is probably it's never in a birder's vocab <laughs> yeah there's not many but there are a couple of seabirds and things that burrow but yeah no it's not there's yeah yeah, yeah. so burrowing birds. i kind of gave you a free pass once that clicked in my head i'm like how is he not oh because falcons don't dig <laughs> um right so i'm the same size and what- we should say that also the mole cricket then became a bit of a totem animal yeah. and at the end of our expedition we had a jungle fancy dress party where you had to dress up with all the things that you could find which were leaves which were leaves and bits of bark and whatever and Jonas went as a mole cricket didn't he yeah, yeah. so uh, again this is I don't want to get too in jokey with this but strapped wood to himself covered himself like he went all in yeah. like as in as you could possibly go on using mud and wood to look like her <laughs> and there was a mole cricket on their wedding uh invitation on the wedding invitation yeah. <laughs> on a little leaf up in the top corner so this is a very totemic animal which yeah. has followed us now for six years and is coming full circle so i tip my hat to you and we will do the the size swap so yeah. well played there right but now how many now i think when i was reading about them if you were their size uh, yeah i think it's a formidable animal yeah because it's yeah i mean some of them are predatory some of them are herbivorous so i guess just choose the ones that eat leaves do you know how many different types of mole cricket there are um well what i read just breaks it down into like six different tribes and i, okay, I hang on find what like the navi in avatar <laughs> like <laughs> i didn't realize they were tribal like <laughs> Just when you thought they couldn't get any worse. I know, there's a fire tribe, an earth tribe, a water tribe. (laughs) Uh, No, I couldn't find a number of species. I didn't see that when I was looking. Okay. I mean, I would say that scaled down... If I'm scaled down to insect size, Mm. do I get any... Do I get any benefit? Do I get any added insect power? Like, do I become stronger? Is it inversely proportional? Is there anything to... That's funny you mentioned that because Jonas said... Of course he did. I will leave it up to you guys. I'm playing chess with a grandmaster. (laughs) He said, I will leave it up to you guys whether you want to factor in any sort of Ant-Man-like powers, which would be you having the strength of normal size Roddy Shaw 
as the mole cricket size. So Jonas did leave that up for interpretation. Okay. But it still becomes the case that even if I'm like as strong as I am now, which you know, not bragging, like look. <laughs> which still so strong. Oh now. my god! Shut up! I didn't know how to go down that sentence without sounding like an asshole. But even if I kept a big Roddy, yeah, strength, a mole cricket could still bite my arm off. Yeah, because my arm is now mole cricket mouth size. Yeah, irrespective of yeah. how. Yeah. What about terrain? I mean, we can you can you can pick this battle anyway. I'm not fighting it in its burrow. I'll no, tell you really. that we're getting it out. I'm fighting it in a petri dish, which is what we put them in in Madagascar to get yeah. a closer look at them. Yeah. Okay. So it can't dig. It can't, it can't dig. No. There's a hard floor. Yeah. Um, it's trapped in there, but then I'm trapped in there You're with trapped it. Trapped in there. It is. Then it just becomes a fight to the death. I think. So I'm going to fight it in a petri dish. Mm. I want it trapped in there with me, but then I'm also trapped in there with it. I have s- tall, roddy strength but small roddy body (laughs) i am in there with the mole cricket i think i think it's so totemic i almost think i want to go 1v1 yeah i think it just at that size is there any uh is there any um because okay i still have is there any non-combat do you know what i'm i'm gonna reject i'm actually gonna reject the ant-man uh, power. You just want to be. You want to be mole cricket level strength. I want to be mole cricket level strength. Yeah. I want equal strength to the mole cricket. Yeah. And I want to go one v one at his size, but on my terrain. And my terrain is oh, okay. a petri dish. Okay. So I'm going one v one with a mole cricket. Can I take like a spear with me? Can we get real tribal and I can do I like think... predator mud over my eyes? And... <laughs> yeah, I think let's embrace let's embrace the uh, Madagascar expedition vibe. Okay. And you know. You've got, you've got the scientific equipment that we had. If any of that is of use, let's just let's set this in that expedition. <laughs> in it's on that table, in the uh, in the little sort of lean-to that we had. Yeah, uh, by the lake. Is there anything you want to shrink? You can grab something before we shrink you down. Oh, before I get shrunk down, I can grab something. Yeah, well, like, okay, you can grab something to be shrunk down because you've. Uh, sacrificed Ant-Man strength which is very noble of you did we have machetes? Uh, I don't think so Damn, I don't think there were real machetes shame. around that's a real shame um, we did have oh and maybe we did because they cut me some misnet poles yeah I think I'm grabbing a machete yeah. I'm getting shrunk down and I'm going toe to toe now that I've got a machete I'm saying three mole crickets whoa okay yeah yeah. three mole crickets in a petri dish <laughs> let's fucking rumble <laughs> Congratulations on your wedding. Yeah. <laughs> it's... No, that's too... No, I mean, we'll probably leave that in, but I'm not doing a fight start. But anyway, it's the Birder segment. Hey. <laughs> Which this week, Jack Baddams is called. So, this is actually coming... This vibe has come in from a few listeners because oh. previously we focused on the birder puns being birder the devil you know yeah birder to have loved than lost yeah harder birder faster stronger etc play on the words better but we've yep. been missing one out like a really good one so today's segment is called birder on the dance floor oh because there's a whole world oh my god of which we will delve into so thank you for the you know the couple of listeners that have suggested this there's a whole world of 
murder puns, which we've missed out. So today's episode, today's segment is called Birder on the Dance Floor. Take a bow, Birder on the Dance Floor members. So, yes, we are back with the Birder, I I almost said the murder segment, but the Birder, (laughs) we're back with the Birder segment. Birder, for anyone who hasn't been listening or doesn't know, sponsors the show, is a fantastic app which helps you get outside and get engaged with birds and the natural world. It's a kind of social network meets sort of data log thing so you can log all the birds you see and go on bird walking trips and it will give you a nudge if you should spend a bit more time in nature people can help id the birds you want it's got maps it's got facts it's got everything and we are gonna take a look this week at the red-tailed hawk oh okay big noise from badams big noise yeah so many people i would say jack without ever having seen or known about the red-tailed hawk will have heard yeah. the red-tailed hawk. Yeah, but you will not have heard it coming from a red-tailed hawk's mouth. So, Jack Baddams, do you want to take us away on this fact, which is in the bird for this species? Okay, so the red-tailed hawk is, for people in Europe, it's um, in the same family as buzzards. It's very closely related to our buzzards. Um, so it's in the Butio family. And it makes the classic bird of prey sound. So, I can't do it. I was thinking, I was like, can I do it? Yeah, but, well, you can try, can't you? So it's just that, ah! sort of sound, like that. So if anyone's <laughs> ever heard a magpie getting run over by a Ford Panda. <laughs> but yeah, it's like the classic scream, the screech, the like the bird of prey sound in all the films, especially like Western films. Imagine like, imagine our hero laying on the in the desert in the Wild West or whatever. And then the sh- the hawk passes over the sh- like the sun and the shadow and you hear the cry. That's the sound of a red-tailed hawk. But because birds like bald eagles and things don't actually sound very cool, what people do in films is they will take the cry of a red-tailed hawk and they will play it for pretty much any generic bird of prey. Not even just in North America too. You could be watching something that's set in Europe, something that's set in Australia, and you'll hear the cry of a red-tailed hawk dubbed over any miscellaneous bird of prey or just to get if they just want to get the vibe of like hostile landscape they'll just stick it on in the background yeah yeah so you mentioned just then the cry of a bald eagle and we're obviously going to come back to that quickly i just want to say a minute ago i said ford panda i meant to say fiat panda so anyone who listens to the show and knows their cards don't even at me i've nipped it in the bud already (laughs) now jack just said things like a bald eagle make a lame noise Now, we heard Jack's red-tailed hawk, so everyone, please sit back and enjoy Mr. Badams's bald eagle. So, for a bald eagle, it's like, it's more like a whistle, but it's like, that's actually pretty good. Like, guy, like North American guys are like, Jesus, a bald eagle. It's like, but obviously louder. But it's, yeah, it's basically like a loud sort of whistly sound. It's cool. I like it. Our white-tailed eagles sound pretty similar as well, and it does sound very, like, of the frozen north um but yeah it's not cool it's not that big kind of screech that they do yeah now there's another example of this outside of the bird world where hollywood has leapt on the noise of one animal and is using it for all of those right do you know what it is is it bears cats bears and cats anything like that no oh okay smaller smaller no i don't know slimier slimier no hair Slugs. Hoppity jumpy. Rabbits. Frogs. Slimy, <laughs> slimy, hairless Let's rabbits. Move on. Let's move on. That's how Jack views rabbits. 
Yes. So I don't know if you know this, but in the world, there is only one species of frog which goes ribbit. Ah. And it is. So I saw Birda sent us this fact, and I knew that you would leap on the bird side of things, but I just wanted to throw in there that this also happens with Pacific tree frogs. The reason being, these are the most common frogs around the Hollywood Hills. Right. So when the movie world was getting up and going, and this goes back to 30s, 40s, when they were just bringing sound into the movies, whenever they needed like a swampy scene or some kind of nighttimey, ooh, creepy, creepy yeah. background noise, they'd just send the sound dude like out the back of the studio and the frogs that would get picked up were the Pacific tree frogs, which are the only species of frog that goes ribbit. Ah, so that became the noise of the frog. That rock. became the noise of the frog. So even today, yeah. whenever they need swampy, creaky, yeah. froggy, whatever marshy noises, it oh. is still, chances are likely, that the recording that you'll hear will be the Pacific tree frog. Possibly even a recording that was made decades ago yeah. and just sits on the shelves now in the in the kind of big sound library that they use. So, there you go. Red-tailed hawks dubbing over all the birds. Pacific tree frog dubbing over all the frogs. Come for the bird. Come to the bird segment for the birds. Stay for the frogs. Exactly. What better way to? <laughs> what a show. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yes, anyone who doesn't have Birda, you can download it. It is completely free. There is the link on our Spotify page. There is a link on the Spotify page and the show description. There's a link in the Instagram page. Check out the app, download it, get outside, log these birds. Anyone in North America, red-tailed hawks, you can see them all over the United States. They've been logged in Massachusetts, in Central Park, in Texas. They're all over the shop. So get out there, download the app, check out some birds, and let's get back to goose stuff. We're back in the Belgian monastery. <laughs> which might just become our new studio. I think so. It's very calm and pleasant here. Yeah. The odd plane, which we apologise for if that comes through. But Parakeet just flown over. Exactly. But here we go. So we've got a question here, Jack, mm. from Pots by CB. Right. And we're breaking new ground. Whoa. Because we are bridging now to the literary world. Oh. Are you familiar with Kafka's Metamorphosis? <laughs> no, I'm going to need some explanation. <laughs> <laughs> so, Potts asks, what would be the worst animal to wake up as akin to Kafka's Metamorphosis? Okay. Now, I will read you the summary of Kafka's Metamorphosis. One of, you know, I'm going to guess that I'm pretty sure it's 20th century literature. Yeah. Big play. So we're, we're really... You know, we're going to pick up new listeners with this one. Well, thank you for humouring me, listeners, because I know you all know what Kafka's Metamorphosis is. Of course. So, But for my benefit. Yes. Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis is about Gregor Samza, a travelling salesman who wakes up one day to find that he is transformed into a giant insect. <laughs> His family is disgusted with him, especially when he is no longer able to earn income. Gregor eventually dies after deciding that he is a burden to his family. Oh, my God. So, seminal piece of literature. Wow. And we're about to take a swing at it. So okay. basically, is there anything which would shame your family more and render you more useless than waking up as a giant insect? So he wakes up as a human-sized insect? Yeah. Okay. My knowledge of Kafka's metamorphosis is thin outside of those four sentences. <laughs> okay. But we're okay. diving headfirst into this. And if you are doing any literature sort of PhDs, don't get in touch. Yeah, keep it to yourself. Yeah. Uh, okay. 
Kafka's Metamorphosis, an animal. So I'm going to be the same size as me, but I'm just going to be a giant animal. Yeah. Um, now. I guess let's also think he was a traveling salesman. And so I being know. a giant insect impacted that. So perhaps if we take it down, you are a TV researcher. Yeah. So which animal would be most useless at that and therefore unable to pay your mortgage? <laughs> I think... Um, so I was thinking, what animal would... What animal... Like, useless animals. Yeah. Okay? If I woke up as a jellyfish... Uh, yeah. It's not good. I can't do anything. It's not good. I literally can't do anything. Yeah. It's not bringing shame on my family, I don't think, as much as just like... <laughs> confusion. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, confusion obviously would be an insect, but the thing with the insect is that there is still some semblance of being able to go about a life. Yeah. So it can't be anything that if you turned into it, you just wouldn't have a life, like a jellyfish, because you'd just yeah. be a gloop. dehydrating on the bed. Yeah. Um, which... Which I've done some mornings <laughs> after a night out. <laughs> I've felt like a dehydrating jellyfish on the bed. Um, so... I think so. It has to be a terrestrial animal. I think. Yep. Okay. Because you need to be able to try and go about life. Starfish out. Starfish out. Uh, mm. Unless you, sh someone sort of keeps you moist enough, and you can scuttle around on your little legs. Starfish can do that, can't they? They can crawl over the rock pools and into another rock pool on their little legs. Yeah, but again, it's not it's winning not, it as a TV researcher. No, it's not a great life, is it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think there's many mammals because people love mammals so much mm. I think if you became unless you were like a big naked mole rat that's the one that I've got in my head yeah but that's just because they're ugly which we've never really spoken much about before no we haven't I think now is maybe the time to touch on them yeah go on then take okay. it away so they've got their teeth on the outside of their lips yeah that's not alright <laughs> just from the start yeah they're the only animal that can go as fast forwards as it can backwards. Also weird. That's weird. Could be useful if you were... Could it be useful? If you were a travelling salesman and you were to immediately <laughs> run away from a door, it could be useful. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it'd be the perfect <laughs> shifty salesman. Um, it would not be... I mean, I imagine they don't handle sunlight well. No. But then I don't anyway. Yeah. So, hmm... They are the only eusocial vertebrate. Yep. So for anyone who doesn't know what that means, it means there's like a queen and a whole structure to them and they're kind of like ants where yeah. some of them are workers and some of them are this. So if you were just on your own, you'd be a bit lost. You'd be a bit lost. You'd be lost. You'd have your teeth outside of your gums. You're naked all the time. You wouldn't be able to go outside and you'd just be wheeling around the house backwards. <laughs> are there any particularly shit birds? <sighs> well, you can't no, say cormorant. I can't say cormorant. Hoatzin. Hoatzin. Also, do you know a name for the Hoatzin? Another Stinky. name. Stinky. The stink bird. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good shout. For people who don't know, Hoatzins are birds that live in like the tropical parts of South America and they're this really cool. They're big. Um, and they have, the young ones have like claws on their wings and they use them to climb around trees and they're just sort of like this really cool ancestral looking bird. Um, but they just eat leaves, which I think basically like just f sit and ferment in their stomach. And yeah, one of their names is Stinkbird. Yeah. So not cool. Hoatzin's a great shout, actually. Because on the face of it, I'd wake up and I'd look at my hand 
and it would be feathers and I'd go oh sick this is mint and then I would look in a mirror and realise I was a hoaxin I've just done a little check to get a bit more info on Kafka's metamorphosis yeah. to understand if there's any other narrative themes yeah. that we should be folding into our thoughts here an exploration of feelings of loneliness and estrangement Gregory when he starts undergoing the transformation tries to deny it then accept it then declines into it so I guess you'd wake up and you'd refuse to believe um, you were a mole rat yeah. <laughs> then you would accept you were a mole rat and then it would kill you and then you'd realise life was shit <laughs> Kafka's Metamorphosis is a magical realist allegorical tale that oh. touches on the theme most central to us all most central to us all Jack <laughs> that of struggling to find and express one's own identity in a world of ever present all consuming obligations so yeah whatever you wake up as you're yeah. now you know you can't do your obligations okay yeah, I think it's. I think it's the. Yeah, I think it's the. I'm trying to think if there's any like reptiles, or amphibians. It's got to be some amphibians. It's got to be like weird frogs that. There's plenty of weird frogs. Yeah, like the Suriname toad and whatever. Yeah, that'd be a weird one. We're basically going. What we're going through here. Okay, so I imagine when he wrote it, he thought, "What is the most useless, etc., animal?" and landed on big insect. Right. Well, I think it's creepy. Yes, but what I guess I'm saying is we're basically running through like the worst mammal, the worst quote-unquote yeah. mammal, naked mole rat, the worst quote-unquote bird to wake up as, Hoatzin, yeah. the worst quote-unquote amphibian to wake up as, probably a Suriname toad. Probably a Suriname toad. Yeah. They're the ones with the holes in the back, aren't they? Yeah, that the babies burst out of the back of the mother's fleshy... So a pregnant Suriname toad that's just about to give birth. That'd oh, be grim. Oh. Yeah. That would be grim. Yeah, so I think it's the most... Unnerving. It, yeah, it's the one that's... Because I imagine when the insect was chosen in the original book, the original book, as though we're writing a call, <laughs> in the book, um, it was looking for, yeah, an animal that is, like, shunned by everybody. Yes. Like, everybody thinks insects are creepy. Yeah, yeah. Therefore, if you became that animal, everyone would shun you. Yeah. So, yeah, Suriname Toad, uh, I, reptile, any rep snakes, people people have creeped out by snakes. If you were a giant snake. But I feel like it's got to be a reptile that reptiles themselves would shun, like a Tuatara, because it's not <laughs> even, it's like its own weird, you know, all the other reptiles are like, what are you even doing <laughs> yeah. in New Zealand with your third eye? Yeah, okay. You know? Yeah. But I do, but all the no, mammals. Because, yeah, but you're waking up as a, but you're waking up in the human world. So it's not about what the other reptiles think. It's about what humans think of you. Because, like, all the mammals might hate pandas, but if you transmorphed into a big, giant, cuddly panda, humans would love you. Hmm. You know? I bet wolves hate dogs. But if you transmorphed into a dog, humans would lose their shit. Yeah, but if you were a human-sized pug, you'd be <laughs> oh, repugnant. That is the animal I would least like to be. Yeah because I would hate to not be able to breathe yeah and then be taken out on walks oh god and people fawn over how cute my little snorting choking noise is yeah and I'd hate to see all the other dogs having fun yeah and me not because I was born this way <laughs> <laughs> feels like we ourselves are on an allegorical journey yeah. here welcome to Kafka's Metamorphosis 2 <laughs> Yeah, I'd, I'd hate to be a pug. Yeah. I think I'd hate to be a full-size pug as well. Yeah. With a close second to naked mole rat. Yeah. Can Hoatzins fly? Yes. Okay, so at least if I woke up as a Hoatzin, well, I could but fly. But this is the thing, like, no matter what animal you turn into, wild animal, yeah. it can do something. Yeah. 
So to look for the truly useless animals, we have to go to the ones that humans have made to be toys, like, you know, mm. these little... you know. Because even if you woke up as a Suriname toad and your family rejected you, you could in some way make it to Suriname and live life as a giant Suriname toad. <laughs> or you could just you go... All of a sudden, you can be underwater. And yeah. You can, like, there's cool shit you can do. Yeah. There is nothing cool you can do... As a pug. you suddenly wake up as a pug. Yeah. Because you can't even... You know, it's not like you've woken up as a uh, Labrador and you can suddenly run quite fast or you can suddenly... Like, there's... like. They are the most useless assemblage of DNA on this planet. <laughs> it's a horrible existence. Yeah. A snorting, uncut loaf of bread. Foul <laughs> <laughs> yeah. beyond, yeah. Yeah, that just... It must be miserable every waking moment of its life. Yeah. So there we go. <laughs> If you're thinking of producing a possibly a live stage adaptation of Kafka's Metamorphosis and are thinking of how can you bring it into the 21st century, yeah. don't have Gregor wake up as a beetle, which we know are functionally fantastic, useful, yeah. helpful creatures we which love run the, the world. Have him wake up as a pug and really stick it to the kennel clubs. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, Crufts. And just like that, another episode is done and dusted. Hollywood, if you're listening, and to be honest, we know that you are, someone out there, please, for the love of God, commission a movie on the Bat Bomb. It is the most insane true story I think I've come across doing this show. Thank you, everyone, very much for listening. Don't forget to go and check out our Instagram page, at HowManyGeese. If you like listening, you can support us at Buy Me A Coffee, another at HowManyGeese. And just stay tuned, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing, keep telling your friends all the internet stuff. Thank you, everyone. Cheers. See you next week. Bye.